Good morning. Uh, Today, uh, we'll be starting a new series on Exodus, and uh, this series, we'll be looking at it in four parts, or in four sections. Uh, We'll be looking at Exodus uh, from the section of rescue, where God rescues the Israelites. Then we're going to look at it from the section of of journey. Uh, And then, uh, once Christmas comes along, we'll look at it through the perspective of Advent, of God coming down, condescending. And finally, we'll look at it through uh, the lens of the law. So it's a long series, uh, probably take uh, about eight uh, to nine months, uh, but uh, very excited for what this series uh, entails. Now, Exodus, uh, the word literally means uh, departure. Uh, It means to leave one's situation and enter into a new one. And this is the dominant theme in Exodus. You know, Exodus is uh, one of those books that, uh, that everyone is familiar with. Uh, but the truth is, uh, people are only familiar with the first half. And uh, I think this skews people's understanding. Yes, Exodus is about God calling the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. But that's not the entire story. All throughout the book, we find God, he is calling his people out. He is calling his people out of certain situations. He is calling the people out of certain hard hard postures. We find that he calls them out of self-sufficiency, come out of self-sufficiency and learn to trust. He calls them out of greed. He calls them out of complaining. He calls them out of false worship and idolatry. He continues to call his people out from sin to righteousness, from immorality to morality, from slavery to freedom. We find all throughout Exodus, God, he is constantly calling his people, telling them to come out from these things and enter into a new relationship. And so as we begin, uh, I want to just ask two things from the congregation. First, uh, please, please, please don't think Uh, to yourself, yeah, you know, Exodus is a familiar story. I know what this is all about. Please uh, don't think that. Uh, You might have watched uh, the Disney version, uh, Prince of Egypt, with your kids. But please, open yourself up. Um, There's so much to glean uh, from this well-known story, this well-known book. The second thing I want to ask you to do is to really seek out, uh, really ask and uh, seek what God is calling you out of and into. You know, just as God's goal, you know, God's goal wasn't just to call the Israelites out of Egypt and put them into the promised land. That wasn't God's full vision. No, God was seeking so much more. He was calling them from false idolatry to true worship. He was calling them from sin to righteousness. We find God constantly calling the people out And I think so is the case with us. You see, God, many of you are sitting here, might be Christian, you might have been Christian for a very, very long time. But God's goal and aim is not just to call you out, right, from the world to his kingdom, or from death to life, and that's all. No, he's after so much more, right? Just because you're sitting here in the pews, you know, God's work in you is not done. He's constantly calling us out. 
to depart from certain sins, to depart from certain attitudes and certain heart postures. He's calling us to continually leave the idols that we worship. And so I don't know, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you've been in a state of despair. And perhaps now God is calling you out of despair into hope. I don't know, maybe you've been a Christian, but you've always been in a state of anxiety, always anxious. Perhaps God, he's calling you from anxiety to peace, or maybe from fear to trust, maybe from anger to joy, or bitterness to contentment, or complaining to thanksgiving. And friends, I'm not just listing things here. These are things that are clearly present in Exodus and things that have wrestled with my own heart as I prepared for this. And so I want you to think, as we go through this series, constantly think, as we go through certain themes, what is God calling me out of and into? What are some of the idols that I have to leave and now seek the true and living God? What are certain heart postures and attitudes that I have that God is calling me to depart. And so we'll begin in Exodus 1 today. Now this chapter, as, as we've just read, and as you can tell, is, a, is an introductory one. Uh, it sets the scene for the story that is to, to unfold. Now for those of you who are familiar with the Bible and who know the story of Genesis, remember at the end of Genesis, uh, Joseph and all of his brothers settled in Egypt. Now, from that point on, hundreds of years go by, over 400 years, and this family now in Egypt has multiplied. And we read this in verse 7. It says this, but the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So this is what happens. In about 400 years, they grow and grow and grow and they multiply. And then we read quickly after that there's this new king who arises, a new king who was ignorant of the past, who did not know Joseph. And we find in verses 9 and 10 that there's this new king, and when he sees Israel increasing, he says this to his people. Behold, he says this to the Egyptians, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies. You know, this sounds a lot like some of the public discourse that's going on here in the States with respect to immigrants. You know, Pharaoh and the Egyptians feel threatened because Israel, the foreigner, is growing. And, uh, you know, verse 12, it, they describe uh, the Egyptians in this way. It says, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. You know, I think a better translation than uh, the Egyptians were in dread was the Egyptians were sick in worry. They were sick in worry. You know, the Egyptians, they were overly concerned with the Israelites. They were obsessed with them. They couldn't stop thinking and worrying about them. And so they decide, Pharaoh and the Egyptians decide, the best way to deal with them is to enslave them, and then one step further 
is to kill all the newborn babies or all the newborn boys by throwing them into the Nile. You know, this chapter that we've just read, Exodus 1, is uh, the beginning is quite similar to uh, the beginning of uh, Genesis. You know, in Genesis, uh, we find the story opens with Adam in the garden. And so here in Exodus 1, we find Israel is in Egypt. Now, Egypt is a desolate, dry, desert land, but the area in which the Egyptians are in and the area in which the Israelites are in is, is actually a rich and fertile land. It's a bountiful land because of the Nile River. And as Adam was called to tend and to care for the garden that he was placed in, we also know that the Israelites are in the pasture lands in Egypt. They are tending their livestock and caring for the land. And as we find here in verse 7, the description that the Israelites, they were fruitful and increasing, they were multiplying. This is actually, in some sense, the fulfillment of the creation mandate in Genesis 1, where God tells Adam to multiply, to be fruitful, and to fill the land. However, as in both cases, this state of life doesn't last long. We find in Genesis, the serpent comes to ensnare, to entrap, and to enslave the first couple, Adam and Eve, eventually leading to death. And we find in Exodus, Pharaoh doing the exact same thing, enslaving and putting the people to death. And as we understand these stories and how they're opening up, we find that what Pharaoh is doing here, just like the serpent, is the very opposite of what God had originally intended. You know, God's intention in creation is life. You know, God, he created us so that we can live. And by living, it just doesn't simply mean breathing and heart beating. But living in the biblical sense means liberty. It means freedom. Living means not being bound by anything here on this earth. That's why when God gives life to Adam, he commands him to rule over, to subdue everything, and to flourish, to increase. See, God had originally created life to be one where not just we're breathing, but one where we're thriving, where we're increasing, and we're one where we're not bound or enslaved by anything on earth. A life that is free to serve God and a life that flourishes. But we find both in the case with the serpent and Pharaoh, they are doing the very opposite of what God had in intended. In a sense, we find Pharaoh, he is rewinding creation. They are unraveling what God had created. I mean, just think about the Nile here in Exodus 1. A Nile, the longest river on earth. A river that's filled with life. A river that gives life to civilizations throughout time. And picture this Nile River filled now with the bodies of dead babies. They are taking what God had originally intended, and they are reversing it. So when God comes, as we find in, uh, in the latter half of uh, Exodus 2, 
The first thing that God now comes to deliver his people from, the first thing that he is calling his people out of in Exodus is slavery. God is calling his people out of slavery so that they can live once again and be free to worship him. This is what God is calling his people out of, out of slavery. Now, as we think about what slavery is, I think I just want to briefly share just two barriers, two barriers to this freedom. You know, it's interesting that when God comes to free his people, to say, you know, I'm going to bring you up out of this land, you know, one of the things that hinders the people is that they don't know that they are slaves. Oftentimes, the Israelites, they are unaware that they are slaves. You know, slavery has this blinding effect. Slavery is sometimes so oppressive that we don't know that we are slaves. Right, in, in, in Exodus 2, Moses, he actually comes to deliver his people, and he tries to save them, but the Israelites' response is, basically, what do you mean? We're okay. You take care of yourself. Worry about yourself. You know, countless times throughout the Bible, God, he comes to his people to rescue them from their slavery. But we find that the people are thinking, I'm not a slave, I'm actually free. You know, more recently, there have been uh, a lot more uh, defectors from North Korea. Or I think we're just more aware of the defectors because they're in the public eye now. Uh, but there's this one defector from North Korea recently. Uh, her name is Yunmi Park. And in her interview with uh, CSNBC, she said something really interesting. When talking about her people, the people in North Korea, she said, my people, or those people living in North Korea, they don't know that they are slaves. They don't know. Because the, uh, the regime is so oppressive they don't know they are in slavery. You know, there's that famous quote often attributed to Harriet Tubman. It goes something like this. She said, uh, I freed a thousand slaves, and I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. And the only person who thinks slavery is a choice is Kanye West. <laughs> you know, slavery is so oppressive that sometimes most of us it blinds us and it confuses us. And I can almost guarantee that people here, that we, sitting here, we are enslaved to certain things. We are slaves to work, we are slaves to entertainment, we are slaves to money, we are slaves to our careers, we are slaves to lust, we are slaves to pornography, we are slaves to our thoughts, we are slaves to our self-image. But you know, if I really asked you, are you a slave or are you free? Most would say, I'm free. In fact, most would say, it's because I'm free. It's because I'm free to do what I want, to do anything with my body. It's because I'm free to do what I want with my money. I can do the things that I do. And you know, this enslavement, that we suffer from, this, this slavery that we are in, you know, we spin it in good ways, don't we? You know, we use words like determination 
or words like passion. We say that we are possessed by something or captivated by it. We say we are driven by this when in fact, most likely, it is enslavement. F. Scott Fitzgerald said this in the side of paradise. He said, I'm a slave to my emotions. I'm a slave to my likes, to my hatred of boredom. I'm a slave to most of my desires. See, this is the reason why I asked you earlier to think about what God is calling you out of and into. Because it just might be the case that we have been in our proverbial Egypt for so long that we don't realize it anymore. We've been in our slavery for so long that we've been so encroached in it that we no longer realize it. You know an excuse that I use all the time for my slavery? I say things like, I'm naturally like this. Or it's my personality. You know, I've been like this my entire life. You know, when I feel as though God is tugging at my heart, telling me to leave that, right, to leave um, cynicism or to leave, you know, a spirit that's critical into a more generous and loving, you know what I always say? I was born this way. <laughs> this was how I was raised. The streets raised me, you know? I'd say something stupid like that to myself. This is who I am. You know, friends, I don't know what specific slavery you are in. But, you know, God, his intention is not just to call you out of the world and get you to sit here in the pews and to be a part of the church, but he's calling you out of that slavery. He's calling you out of that habit, that heart posture, whatever it is that enslaves you. He's calling you out of it. We need to open up our eyes. Second barrier, I think, to this freedom that uh, we find with the Israelites is this uh, false idea that, that God, when he calls us out of slavery, he does so with the intention to enslave us. <clears throat> you know, later on when the, uh, when the Israelites are freed and they leave Egypt, um, they go through a number of hardships and um, when they go through these hardships, they actually tell Moses, hey, we want to go back. And you know what they say? You know how they interpret their slavery? They say, they say this. This is in Exodus 16.3. They say this. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the fill. You know, this is the Israelites, you know, they, they, they have this idea that when God had rescued them out of slavery, he had brought them out of slavery only to enter into a new form of bondage. You know, all throughout the Exodus narrative, the people are questioning God. They're questioning his goodness. Why did God do this? Why did God bring us out? Why is he leading us this way? Oh no, we had it so good back then in Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. You know, isn't that the serpent's temptation in the garden? Right, when the serpent comes to, 
to the woman and says, hey, you know, you should eat this. And his temptation is what? You know, God said not to eat this because he is withholding good from you. It's this idea that God, he is restricting you and that you are not actually free. You know, I think society has brought, uh, bought into this lie uh, too often. There's this idea out there that God is restrictive, that Christianity is a bunch of rules, that to believe in God means that I'm not free to think what I want to think, that to follow Jesus means I'm not free to go where I want to go. And Christianity is often portrayed as this straight jacket. I'm not sure if you've ever felt this way. You know, I hear it's quite common in people who grew up as a Christian, right? I've counseled dozens of college students who grew up as Christian thinking this, right? They think, man, God, he is so restrictive. My weekends are never mine. I can't do what, I can't do what my friends do. And they thought to themselves, I can't wait to go to college to be free. But it was only to realize that through such freedom, they actually became enslaved to certain habits that they were desperately now trying to shake off. Friends, we have misunderstood God. We have grossly mischaracterized God. When God says, do not eat, it is actually for our good. But we oftentimes are like immature children thinking that our parents are just restrictive, thinking that they don't have our best interest in mind. Now, just see the difference that we find between God and Pharaoh, right? When we find Pharaoh, he is enslaving them. What does he make them do? He makes them build cities, store cities. And the text actually says they built store cities for Pharaoh. It's for Pharaoh. But when God tells us, do not eat, when God calls us out of slavery, he does so for our own good. When God restricts, it's for our delight. You know, C.S. Uh, Lewis, um, he said uh, this in he expressed this very well in, in his book, uh, Screwtape Letters. Now, Screwtape Letters, I think I've introduced this to you a number of times, but Screwtape Letters is written from the perspective of uh, a, a demon. So whenever it says we or I or us, it's actually referring to, to Satan and his uh, minions. And the enemy in this case is God. And this is what this, is what, uh, this, this demon, this, um, this fictional demon is writing. He says, to us, human is primarily food. But the obedience which the enemy God demands of men is quite a different thing. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be quantitatively like his, not because he has, he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who we can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. You know, 
the first barrier for us leaving our slavery is to understand that we are slaves. We are enslaved to certain things. And I know that's a very, very difficult thing to admit, especially when you're so obsessed with it, when you're so driven by it, when it possesses you so much. Yeah, the first barrier or the first step is to understand, to admit that I'm a slave to this. I'm a slave to these certain habits, to these certain heart postures, to these certain attitudes. I'm a slave to it. And the second is to understand that when God is calling us out of these things, He is calling us out not to enslave us or entrap us. He's calling us out so that we can be truly free. You know, I think no one, no one, whether you are a believer or a non-believer, no one can read the Bible and say with a clear conscience that God does not have our best interest in mind. Not in the garden, when God gives to man everything, says all of this is yours, but just don't eat from this tree. No, God had their good, their good intentions in mind. Not here in Exodus when God, he delivers his people out of oppression and out of slavery. God has his people in mind. He wants to set them free. And certainly not in the New Testament. When God voluntarily restricts himself by putting on flesh and coming in the likeness of man. And God in Christ empties himself and he takes on the form of a slave, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, God is not trying to enslave us and use us up. We are not cattle raised to be slaughtered for food. We are sons called into an eternal inheritance. Remember the Father's word and the parable of the prodigal son the father's word to the elder son. He says, everything I have is yours. The logic is quite simple. If God gave up that which was most precious to him, how can we ever question if God has our best interest in mind? And I think this is sort of the tipping point for Christians. When God is calling you out of that slavery that you are in, the question that you have to answer is, does God have my best interest in mind? If I leave this, does it mean that God would give me something better? You know, I recall a pastor talking about this man that he was counseling, a man with a sexual uh, addiction. And he was counseling him for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the pastor noticed something, that this man actually doesn't want to leave this addiction. And so he finally asked him, hey, you've been coming to me for counseling for a while, but do you want to really leave this? And the man says, no, I don't. Because if I leave it, I don't know what's out there for me. You know, for us to leave whatever hot postures we have and whatever attitudes that God is calling us out of, for us to leave our sinful habits and our slavery, we have to understand and know that God, when he's calling us out, he is calling us out of the slavery to be truly free again. You know, just uh, closing, I just want to um, just clear up a few things. 
Or actually, I want to clear up one thing. You know, I think there's this idea out there that true freedom is the absence of rules. That to truly be free, we, it means that we don't have any rules. But true freedom is not a college frat life. But it's the very opposite. You know, true freedom is voluntarily submitting and being obedient. How do you know when someone is truly free? How do you know if you are truly free? You know you're truly free if you can actually give yourself as a slave to something, yet never doubt in your mind that you are still free. Being truly free as a Christian means knowing that I am a son, I am a daughter, I am a child of God, and I can give myself to this and never question once, is God enslaving me? Never questioning once your own freedom. You know, we see this in the life of Jesus, a life that voluntarily submits and gives himself and obeys. Jesus was truly free. When God frees us, it means that we can freely follow him and be delighted. You know, a rich man who has all the money in the world to do whatever he wants, he isn't necessarily free. But a rich man who gives generously without thought, that is a free man. A man who has these rights, a man who is free, isn't necessarily free. But a free man who serves, who gives himself up, that's a free man. Someone who's free to love isn't free. But someone who voluntarily gives himself to love someone, that is a truly free man. A person who, is, who has the freedom to choose from all religions isn't actually free but the one who bow downs and worships the true and living God, his creator and his redeemer. That's a free man. You know, Tim Keller, uh, in his book, Reasons for God, he has this uh, great illustration. You know, he says this, you know, what true liberation is, is confinement and constraint. To be truly free means that you confine yourself and you constrain yourself. And he says, and he, and he uses this illustration, he says this, if you have musical aptitude, if you're gifted in music, you're gonna give yourself to practice and practice and practice. You're gonna be on the piano or whatever instrument for years. And this is a restriction. It's a limit on your freedom, right? There are many other things that you won't be able to do with this time that you're practicing. But if you have the talent, that discipline and limitation, that limitation that you voluntarily put yourself under will unleash your ability that would otherwise go untapped. And he writes this, what have you done? You have deliberately lost your freedom to engage in some things in order to release yourself to a richer kind of freedom to accomplish other things. You know, you think about the people who have journeyed and walked this faith. You know, I think about Eric Little, the, the gold medalist, the Olympian runner, 
who, you know, refused to run his track, his race, because it was on a Sunday. Who eventually went off, called to be a missionary in China, was imprisoned in a concentration camp, and who died. You look at his life, you read his life, and you tell me, was that not a free man? He was free. You think about the Apostle Paul. You know, one of the amazing things about Paul is, you know, some of his letters, he's, he's actually written them in prison. Philippians. He wrote the book of Philippians in prison. And you know, what's going on while he's in prison is people are uh, slandering his name. People are reviling his name. They're cutting down his image, his reputation. They're saying all sorts of nasty things. They're spreading all sorts of rumors about Paul. The churches that he's planted, they, they are, they're a hot mess right now. And Paul is in prison. And you know what his attitude is? That doesn't concern me. And he pens these very words while he's in jail. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Tell me, those, tell me, are those not the words of a free man? Someone who has voluntarily given himself up to this, given himself up to the kingdom cause. That's a truly free man. Friends, this morning, I ask you to search within you to see what God is calling you out of, knowing that whatever it is, that God, he has your best intentions and your best in mind. Join me in prayer this morning.